0: Lord, how hard these moments must have been for Jesus, Lord. How incredibly painful it must have been to say the things he had to say, knowing, Father, what awaited him in the coming days, Lord. Father, we have much to see yet in this book, but we must remember that we're so very close to the moment when he would lay down his life for us. And, Father, here he is before men of evil. And, Lord, before them he declares that, Lord, he doesn't want them to do this. He doesn't want them to act this way. Lord, let us not be people who miss out on Jesus. Let us not be people who miss out on the coming of the Lord. But let us, Father, rejoice that the Messiah has come. Help us, Lord, to see him in all of his glory today. We ask this in his name. What does it say that Jesus lamented over the sad state of his people? And what what does it tell us about his general attitude toward the sinful condition of a whole world of people who persist in animosity towards him? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he declared. Words uttered repetitiously to emphatically relate the abundance of sorrow that he felt towards the people of the city. What, what does that tell us that he would lament so? It tells us that Jesus was not only deeply sorrowful over the sin of the people, but that it also brought him absolutely no joy to denounce it. As Ezekiel recorded in Ezekiel 18, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? My friends, never think that the things that Jesus said to the scribes and the Pharisees earlier in this chapter were a joy for him to say. In fact... They were a sorrow for him. He said that they preach but do not practice. He said that they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders. He said that they do all their deeds to be seen by others. That they shut the kingdom of heavens in people's faces. That they are blind, fools. He said that they are full of greed and self-indulgence, that they are lawless hypocrites, that they are like whitewashed tombs. He said that they are murderers like their fathers before them and that they are children of hell. And seven times throughout chapter 23, Jesus said to them, Woe to you. But these words brought him no joy. Because they were but the sad necessity of a rightful king before his rebellious subjects. And in verse 37, his grief over it all is, it is made clear when he says, Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Emphasizing his sorrow over them. But in verse 39... A ray of hope emerges. So that what is being communicated here is not only sorrow for sin, but also hope for sinners. Yes, my friends, there is sorrow for sin, but there is hope for sinners. And in these three verses at the end of this chapter, before he begins this incredible last sermon in chapter 24... In these three verses, right here at the end of this narrative portion, Jesus states the ultimate problem, he declares the devastating consequence, and he reveals the future hope. First of all, Jesus states the ultimate problem. Look at verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus explains this problem by first relating the hideous symptom, and then by declaring the underlying condition. First of all, he he relates their hideous symptom. Jesus, speaking from the temple, which is in the city of Jerusalem, he mourns over Jerusalem. Because it was a city known historically for persecuting the prophets of God who were sent to her. The name Jerusalem, I think, is used somewhat symbolically here by Jesus as the heart of Israel. The place where its leaders taught and where God's temple was placed. And I think this lament, therefore, isn't only for the Jews who lived there in the city. But rather, it's a lament for the whole nation of Israel as represented by its capital and by its mightiest metropolis. Time and again, God had sent prophets to her. Men like Isaiah. Men like Jeremiah. Men like Ezekiel. And time and again, century after century, the people of Israel, led by some ungodly leaders, they rejected and they persecuted God's men. They did not want to follow God's ways, and therefore they did not want to honor God's messengers. And this wickedness led to the final and perhaps strongest of rebukes that Jesus gave the scribes and the Pharisees right here in this chapter. Look back up just a few verses. Look at verse 29. Hear what Jesus said, what we considered last week. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets. And decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness to yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. And then verse 35, Jesus said, So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. He is saying to them, That you are right in line with everything that your fathers before you did. Just as they, out of their own self-love and God-hatred, chose to reject his people who were sent to them again and again and again, so you too are doing the same thing. You're just like your father. You're just like them. You act like them because when God sends a prophet to you, when he sends John the Baptist to you, you don't believe him. You mock him. And when God sends the Messiah to you, you reject him. You slay him. And when Jesus sends his apostles to you, you're going to take them and you're going to stab them with swords and you're going to crucify them upside down. You're going to do all kinds of horrible things to my men. This is who they are. The symptom of their great problem, of the hearts of these individuals, was that they persecuted God's messengers. This is the symptom. They killed them. They stoned them. They rejected their message with violence. And this reminds us of the illustration that Jesus gave back in chapter 21 with the parable of the tenants. I want to just read it because it now just comes all together. In chapter 21, verse 33, Jesus gave this parable. He said, hear another parable. There was a master of a house, God, who planted a vineyard, Israel. And he put a fence around it and dug a winepress in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants, think prophets. He sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and they beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, prophets, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. As reprehensible as that was for servants to be mistreated by those who should have honored the landowner, so the people of Israel, led by truly horrible leaders, were those who were going to take the men of God who would come and proclaim the word of God, and they would kill them, they would slay them, and they would eventually kill his own son. So this symptom was hideous. It showed true rebellion against God. And yet, understand... It was but a symptom stemming from a more terrible condition. And that leads us to the second thing that Jesus communicates in verse 37, the underlying condition. Notice verse 37 carefully. He says, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. You see that little clause at the end? The reason why they reject him is because they were not willing, he says. Christ's words. Their ultimate problem, their underlying condition, was a matter of the will. God extended his hand of grace and wisdom to these rebels... Time and time again, offering them forgiveness and reconciliation with him over the centuries. But they did not want it. Do you catch that? Jesus doesn't say they were ignorant. He says they did not want it. He sent them prophet after prophet. He gave them opportunity after opportunity, but they were not willing. My friends, this is the deepest problem of the human condition, right here. This is the deepest problem of the human condition. Everything else is symptomatic. It is not simply that we are prideful. It is not simply that we are selfish. It is not simply that we are dishonest or unkind. It is that, at our deepest point, we do not want God. And our underlying condition, we find him, along with his offer of mercy, distasteful and objectionable and repugnant. We don't want him. We don't want what he's offering down in the deepest part of our being. And this is because down in the deepest part of our being, down where it counts, we are utterly broken. As the Apostle Paul writes, spiritually, we are dead. Jesus He articulated this so incredibly well during his time on earth. I want you to to turn with me. This is such a short passage here. I want you to kind of get the fuller sense of what he's getting at here. Turn with me over to John's gospel. So hold your hand in Matthew 23, but go over to John chapter 5. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 837. John chapter 5, pew Bible, page 837. And look with me at John 5, beginning at verse 37. This is Jesus speaking. John five thirty-seven. Jesus says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not Believe the one whom he has sent. Verse 39. You search the scriptures. Understand, he's speaking to the Jewish leaders. You search the scriptures, verse 39, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Isn't that ironic? Men of religious renown, they search the scriptures that they might have eternal life. Those same scriptures point to Jesus Christ, but when Jesus Christ comes, they don't believe him, and they don't have life. Isn't that sadly ironic? Why? Why is that the case? Why do men like that, and why do people like us Reject him. Why do people who, like these guys, want eternal life, why do they go to the scriptures which tell about Jesus, and Jesus comes, and they say no, and they stiff-arm him, and they say no. I don't want him. Why do people do that? Well, if you're in John 5, flip back two chapters. Jesus has already declared the answer. Human beings refuse to come to Jesus that they may have life. Why is that the case? John 3, look at verses 19 and 20. Recall verse 16, the perhaps most famous verse in all of Scripture. Verses 19 and 20, just a few verses later, Jesus says, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light why catch this lest his works should be exposed there's two reasons why people don't come to the light There's two reasons, two interconnected reasons, Jesus says, why people don't believe in him, why people don't accept him, why people don't find life in Jesus, he says. He's proclaimed, he's shared, he's read in Scripture. There's two reasons why people, when they hear Jesus, don't embrace him. Number one, they love the darkness. They love their sin. I love my sin. You love your sin. You like pleasing yourself. You want to keep on making yourself number one. You love the darkness. And because you love the darkness, the second thing is true. The end of verse 20, lest his work should be exposed. You don't want anyone to say that your way is darkness. Do you get that here? We don't want anyone to tell us We don't want anyone to expose us, declaring that our way is actually not the way of light, but is the way of darkness. Why do human beings hear of Jesus Christ and reject him? Ultimately, Jesus says because they love their sin down in the core. They love it, and they don't want anyone to tell them, that's wrong, you must repent of it and believe in Jesus. You have need because of your sin, and you must embrace Jesus Christ, the only hope, because of your sin. People love their darkness. People love their sin, and they do not want God to call them on it. Matthew Henry, the old Puritan, writes, It is wholly owing to the wicked wills of sinners, that they are not gathered under the wings of the Lord Jesus. They did not like the terms upon which Christ proposed to gather them. They loved their sins and yet trusted to their righteousness. They don't like the terms. They don't like the terms that God lays down. They don't like the terms of Jesus. He says to them, you're prideful, you're sinful, you are going in a way of unrighteousness, and you must repent of that and come and follow me, embrace me in faith. And they say no. I'm plenty good in and of myself, and I'm liking my way plenty. I'm not going to turn from it, and I'm not going to accept you as Messiah. If you will get a sword and go lead me to take on the Romans, I'll follow you, because that's in line with my will. But I have no desire whatsoever to come follow you if you say the word, Repent. This is the underlying condition for Jerusalem, for the people of Israel. And this condition was much worse than the symptoms of how they treated the Lord's prophets. The underlying condition was worse because, ultimately, of how they treated God. Ultimately, our sins are always Godward. Even the sins we commit on a horizontal plane, ultimately, they're all committed Godward because we perform them to please ourselves, and we do not seek to honor God. Essentially, in their hearts, they discarded But back in Matthew 23, in all of this, in all of this, would you just notice the Lord's heart in verse 37? Now, you remember, many of you were here when we went through the book of Judges, right? And week after week, the people of Israel, they would get all prideful, self-reliant, lustful. They would begin to go towards other gods. And then devastation, God would bring judgment upon them, discipline upon his people. They would see the grievous nature of what they have done. They would repent, at least in words. And they would commit to following God again. He would relieve them. He'd raise up a deliverer, a Christ-like figure who would free them from that consequence. And then for a short moment, they would follow. And then they would be filled up with pride. They would be filled up with self-reliance. They would be filled up with lust. And the circle continued on and on again. The book of Judges is but a microcosm not only of the people of Israel, but the book of Judges is a microcosm for the human condition. At the end of the day, we want what we want, and what we want is not God. We are broken. But Jesus, in verse 37, notice the spirit that he has shown them. He says, How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen? "'Gathers her brood under her wings. "'I'm a Midwest guy. (laughs) "'I know what a farm looks like. "'I know what a chicken coop looks like. "'I know what hens do. "'While Jesus was on earth,' These men had one opportunity after another to receive him as their heaven-sent Messiah, but they would not. And down through the ages, opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent and follow the word of their God, but they would not. And his heart to them over and again was to gather them like a bird that surrounds its young with its wings and keeps them warm and keeps them protected. But they would not. Accept him as their Christ. And so Jesus communicates sorrow and regret over their inexcusable sin. As Luke records Jesus saying in chapter 19 of his gospel, that when Jesus drew near the city, he wept over it. He wept over the city. And he said, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Oh, that you had known! the peace that is being offered to you, the reconciliation that is being extended to you, the freedom in God that is being provided for you, but you would not. So here we see the ultimate problem, and my friends, it brought Jesus no joy. And secondly, Jesus declares the devastating consequence. Look at verse 38. See, your house is left to you desolate. Now, when you read the word desolation here, you should think isolation and abandonment. This house is an undefined reference, probably referring to the temple and the city of jerusalem and all of the people of israel themselves all at the same time loose reference that's referring to it all the temple in that moment the city of jerusalem all the people of israel in fact verse 36 look up a couple of verses it says truly i say to you all these things will come upon this generation so it's ultimately it's primarily the people who are going to lose out all of this is going to come upon the house All of this is going to come ultimately upon the people of Israel. And the house of Israel will be left to the people as desolate. Desolate conjures up images of emptiness. In chapter 3, we are told that John the Baptist, he went to desolate places where there were no people. Because those places were barren. They were empty of all human beings. And in verse 37, Jesus seems to be communicating that Israel is about to lose, be empty of something that is very unique and is very special for them. The people of Israel are about to lose the special blessed presence, the special blessed presence of Jesus Christ himself. The Jews, to whom the Messiah had been promised, are about to lose the presence of their Messiah. They're about to be abandoned by God and left without his good hand upon them. They will be empty-handed, so to speak, because they have rejected the Christ. This is is as devastating as it gets. Because if pleasures forevermore are found at God's right hand, then only sorrow is found in separation from him. Jesus, their Messiah, is going to go away from them. Verse 39 tells us that. They're not going to see him again. He's going to go. Their Messiah, who would have gathered them to himself, will now leave them, and they will be left empty and spiritually hungry and searching, searching. Where is the Messiah? He's already come, and you said no. Now understand, this is God essentially giving them precisely what they want. Okay? God's not giving them something here that they don't want. He's actually giving them, I think, something that they want. In the minds of the Pharisees, to have Jesus say that he's going to depart from them, that's what they desired. They don't want him there. They don't want his presence. They were not willing to accept him as their king. They wanted an existence apart from God's declared king, an existence where they were free to live out their own wretched hearts. My friends, this is at least part of what hell is. Hell is, on some level... God giving rebels what they want. Which is an existence that is completely free from his good wisdom. An existence that is completely free from his good watch care. An existence that is completely free from his good love. Giving people what they want. You don't want him. He gives you an existence that's devoid of him. So they would face... The consequence, the house of Israel will be left desolate by their God. But oh, praise him, this is not the end of Christ's word, and oh, praise him, this is not the end of the book, is it? Third this morning, Jesus reveals the future hope. Verse 39, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The people of Israel will not see the Messiah again until the day he returns to them in judgment. Now, some try to force a little bit more into this text than I think is actually here. This verse in and of itself, I don't think it actually tells us that the Israelites will one day regard the day of Christ's return as a happy day. It says that they will call him blessed, but it doesn't say that they themselves will be blessed. Now, I do think that passages like Romans chapter 11 hint that God will one day do an incredible missionary work among the Jewish people so that when Jesus does return to earth, the people of Israel will, by and large, look upon the one whom they have pierced and will embrace him. I do think that's what Scripture teaches. But here in verse 37... Trying to just be fair to this text, I think it simply says that they won't see Jesus again until they say, ah, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All along, we should have known that's him. This statement, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, it's found in Psalm 18, and it was just a common refrain among the Jews. It's one of those things that they just said a lot around Israel. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord in expectation of the Messiah, What's more, this is the exact same statement that many of the people of Israel uttered about Jesus when he had his triumphal entry back in chapter 21. Hosanna! Hosanna! Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is saying here, I think, that there will come a day when the people of Israel will finally admit it. They're going to put two and two together, and they're going to see it. This Jesus is the blessed one of God. This Jesus is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. There's going to be a day when the people of Israel, it seems, will finally get it. And this will be said about him on that day, the day that he comes back, on the day of judgment when he will occupy the throne of this world as its everlasting king. And here, in verse 39, if you scratch just a moment, you see here is the ray of hope because. Jesus says that he's coming. The Jews will one day say this about Jesus because there's going to be a day when Jesus truly does come back. He tells them that he's going to leave, they're going to be desolate, but then he's going to come back. My friends, He came once, the first time, as we've been seeing in Matthew's gospel, primarily to deal with sin. He came the first time primarily to deal with our sin. He came to point out our sin. He came to point out our need. And then he came ultimately to pay for our sin, to supply our need. Jesus Christ came the first time as the suffering servant of God who would lay down his life, shedding his blood, being nailed to a cross as we are going to see, so that his people could be forgiven. So that all of the rebels who in their hearts have not wanted him could have hearts awakened, embrace him in faith, and be forgiven. This is why he came the first time. And Jesus seems to allude here, as he said already several times in this book, and he's going to say again, that he's going to come again. Primarily, I think, to judge and rule as king. And on that day, those who were not willing to be gathered by him, like a hen gathers her brood, they will be judged. And they will enter eternity apart from the goodness of God. And also on that day, Those who embrace him as Savior and Lord, who have had their hearts enlivened, awakened by God, they will receive reward at his side. Eternal, joyful, perfect relationship with God himself. My friends, when we read this passage, it can be easy sometimes to think that this only has application for Israel. But this lament is for us too because we are sinners. We also have a problem We also have a consequence. We also have a hope. Our problem is that we are born with wills inclined against God. Sinners are born spiritually dead and simply don't want what God offers. We humans, we love our sin, and we despise anyone who tells us that it's wicked. Check your own heart the next time someone corrects you. How do you respond to that? Do you love it when someone tells you wrong, or do you like it when someone tells you wrong? It's one little glimpse of what your heart is like. You love yourself, you love your own way, you think you're fine, and when someone tells you otherwise, God or no God, you don't want it. Therefore, in our heart of hearts, we reject God. We are broken inside. And our only hope is for God and His grace to step down and intervene, help us to see our condition because of His gracious intervention and allow us to believe upon His Son, to see our need and to see His sufficiency. And those who don't want what He offers also reject the ones who bring His offer. They reject the ones who bring His offer. We will do Whatever we have to do to protect our ears and protect our consciences from being told that our actions and our very hearts are dark towards our maker and that we, we must repent. And so we go about the filling of our lives with meaningless pursuits While we either avoid those who bring conviction over sin, or we chastise those same messengers and call them intolerant and rude. We either stay clear or we put up the knives. That's what sinners do. This is our condition. This is our greatest problem. And you know, the sad remnants of this problem are also why Christians even can at times seek to push God to the outskirts of our minds, hoping for some freedom from the thought of him so that we might engage in some sin that we've been longing for. We want to go to a desolate spot, push him aside so that he can't see, and then we can do what our heart wants to do. Christian, this is us when we sin we too are tempted to seek out desolation in order to flirt with the old depravity that once marked us. And our consequence, a consequence for unbelievers, those who don't know Christ, a consequence for those who reject him, the consequence for those who will not be inclined towards him and believe upon Jesus, the consequence for all of this is isolation from the presence of God. That's the consequence. Isolation from the presence of God. When we sinners reject him, we eventually get what we seek, which is relief from God's instruction, relief from God's wisdom, relief from God's pursuit of fellowship with us. Eventually, he says to the unrepentant, Depart from me, I never knew you. And those who have refused to look upon Christ in faith, they will be free of him for all eternity and they will experience the terrible weight of the darkness that comes from freedom from God. Eventually, it will sink in. This distance that I so longed is actually my utter undoing. We are ultimately doomed by what we seek because we will experience the loss of all of his goodness. My friends, sinner, Christian or no, Everything that you enjoy, everything that's good in life, every relational blessing, everything that you have that you say, yes, I'm glad that's in my life, everything that you have all comes as a result of the fact that there is a good God above. And when you reject him, after appeal, after appeal, after appeal to your heart, he will eventually say, you get it your way. You will be free of me. And you might think, that's great. I'm going to go to hell and me and my buds, or it's going to be excellent. But you're going to find that you and your buds are not going to be buds. There's not going to be any buds. There's only going to be darkness. Because you have an existence apart from the goodness of God. Oh, he'll see everything. It's not that he won't be there in every sense. He's the judge over all. He's eternally existent. But his goodness will not be found there. Only his wrath. Jesus said back in Matthew 8, verse 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This loss, it will be most devastating Hell, my friends, will not simply be unhappy. Hell will be marked by darkness. It will be marked by the absence of all goodness and the absence of all joy. It will be a place of unmeasured, unquenchable, and unending regret and sorrow. Because in hell, we get what we want, absolute freedom from all the goodness of God. We don't want him, and so we get that. Even for Christians even for those who have been bloodbought, those who have been hearts-transformed, those who have been saved, redeemed, forgiven, even for Christians, there is a sorrow that comes when we get our own selfish way and when we practice the sin that has wooed us. Because though we get the sin that we desired, it ultimately, eventually, once it's run its course, it ends up tasting bitter and it leaves us feeling most sorrowful because in our sin we too miss out on the taste of God's goodness. But our hope is the blessed Jesus. We must place our hope in two directions. The Christian hope is found in two directions. First, we must place our hope in Jesus' first coming with repentant faith. Recognize that he came for sinners. Recognize that he died for sinners. Recognize that he rose again, triumphant over sin and death. Recognize you yourself are a sinner in need of God's grace. See the sufficiency of what he's accomplished. Repent of your sins, meaning turn your back on them and embrace Jesus in faith. The first direction is to look back in hope that came with Christ's first coming and to do so with repentant faith. The second direction for the, Christians to, for the Christian to look for the blessed Jesus is to place our hope in Jesus' second coming with an eager expectation. Because even though we have the joy of the Lord and the people of God as one wonderful means of His grace, this life is hard. And the darkness, though we've been freed from its enslavement, it just keeps pressing in. And though we can live in strength and in victory with God today, oh, what a day it will be when our Savior comes for you and me. He's going to come again. And with eager expectation, we look to it, and that drives us. And it makes us say, I want my friend to know him so that he might look with eager expectation too. So that he also might say with me, blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And so we find comfort, we find solace, and we take that comfort and solace and we extend it to the one we love or the one we've just met that they too might know it. My dear friends, there is sorrow for sin, but there is hope for sinners. Will you be one who says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Lord, I pray for my friends today. Let them be trusting in Jesus. Father, if there be those who are resistant to him, who don't want him, perhaps a young person that has gone through difficult things and is hearing these things for the first time and doesn't know what to think, Lord, the middle-aged person, Father, who is so busy that they don't give Christ the thought that they should, the more aged individual, Father, who is resolved in their own right understanding of the world. Help all of us, Father, to see our own weakness, our own sinfulness and rebellion against you and realize what Jesus has done and embrace him in faith. And then, Father, let each of us here, all of my friends in this room, let us look with eager expectation for the coming of the Lord, serving him in the meantime, looking with great hope for the day when Jesus will be ours face to face. We pray this in his precious name.